scripture, let me please ask you to pray with me. Father in heaven, just with my mind wrapped around our dear Jane and her life, I give you thanks for her and Albert especially too. And I give you thanks for her dear, sweet life lived honestly and forthright before you. We're grateful that you graced many of us and certainly our church with knowing her and serving with her, worshiping with her and uh, delighting in her. So thank you for Jane's life and I pray for our dear Albert that as he has always, but most especially in these last years, loved his wife well and been to us a great example of loving wives as Christ has loved us. I pray that in his real grief that he must experience because he so loved his wife that you would grant him the sweet grace and comfort of sharing in her joy. And God, for us now, as we consider this scripture, that you would grant grace to us to give us eyes to see it, ears to hear it, hearts, really, to believe it, and lives that would show it. And so I pray now, um, take away any resistance that we might have to focusing attention and listening to and devoting our lives to the word. And I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you'll work it deep within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, <clears throat> to <clears throat> excuse me, to 2 Corinthians and chapter 4. I want to read just a few verses. 2 Corinthians and chapter 4. We're in the midst of something. We started 2 Corinthians a while ago, and we're in the midst of something. Uh, I'll try to catch us up and then move us along. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16... Uh, Through 18, this, of course, is the word of the Lord. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, excuse me, beyond all comparison, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Seen are transient, unseen are eternal. Just give me a second here. I got these little watery things in my eyes from my prayer. And I should have done this before I read, then I could have seen it more clearly. There you go. You all have the luxury of just sitting there. I have to talk. Uh, <clears throat> so, bear with me. Now, this particular passage um, is, a, is, a, is, 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 is one that I think 
to many well-known, uh, and if not, is easy to, to sort of grab your mind around. But I commend it to us, A, it's in the scripture, thus profitable for us. But, but in this sense, too, that it, it really captures, there's some passages, some expressions, some, some verses that capture for us, summarize for us a great deal about what it means to be a believer in and a follower of Jesus. This is one of those. Paul really began this section really in the middle of chapter 2, but, but really most expressly in, in, in verse 1, because we see the same expression there. We see in verse 16, he says, we do not lose heart. We see it again in verse 16. We do not lose heart. So Paul's talking about, as, we, as we've kind of been developing the last couple of weeks, Paul's talking about how it is that he keeps from losing heart. How does he remain hopeful in the midst of all that is going on, all that he has and is and will experience in life? So how does he remain hopeful? How does he keep from giving up? How does he keep from becoming weary? Uh, how does he continue, if you will, to press on? And, and, and we've done this, so let me just do this quickly. Let me just make sure we catch up. That, that Paul experiences persecutions, we know. Everywhere he goes, there's opposition to him. He's been called to take the gospel to the Gentiles, called to take the gospel to various places. He's doing that faithfully, but everywhere he goes, he ends up uh, being opposed. In fact, there are people who follow him around so they can oppose him. And so you got to wonder, how, Paul, how do you keep pressing on in the midst of that? We know on one occasion, there was someone who came to Paul and said, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound, meaning imprisoned and all of that. And he says, I know. And he went anyway. How does he do that? How does he keep walking in the face of opposition without getting worn out, without becoming weary, without giving up, without losing heart? How does he remain hopeful? He suffers in the midst of a life like that you could only imagine. But he has, he has physical weaknesses just like every human being. God didn't superintend his life and make him some kind of superman. They could just glide through all the things that were happening to him. Uh, he had weaknesses physically. Illnesses, what he calls a thorn in the flesh which is a painful way of describing something painful. A thorn in the flesh. You can only imagine the physical pain and the emotional suffering that brings, but the physical pain of it. And so uh, he experienced that. He, he, knew, he knew weakness because he was a man who sinned. And he knew temptation. And he knew pride. He knew selfishness. He knew the sins we know and the temptations we know. and He knew his own weakness in the midst of all of this. How did he keep from giving up <clears throat> knowing what he knew and knowing the man he was to be and still knowing his own heart? How did he continue on without, without, giving, without giving up? And he knew opposition from even within the church. He was slandered by the church in Corinth and thus he's writing to them about his own life his own life and ministry. He knew the impossibility of the task that he had before him to take the gospel and to open people's eyes, which only the Spirit of God can do. And he knew that was his charge and he was to do that. How do you keep doing that in the midst of all of this um, without losing heart? Same for us. How do we not lose heart in the midst of life, in the midst of suffering, afflictions and difficulties, in the midst of our weaknesses, in the midst of our frailty, in the midst of our anxieties and our fears and our uncertainties and in the midst of difficulties that we find in relationships and difficulties that we find 
with our bodies and difficulties we find in life, the difficulties we find in, in, in church, in the gospel enterprise to which we've been called in the midst of a city where there is really opposition, in the midst of a world where there really is opposition. How do we keep on? How do we press on? How do we continue on in the midst of this, in the midst of the life in which, in which we live? Well, that's what Paul has been talking about. That's what he's going to continue uh, to talk about. But could I just for a moment not move on? Could I just, could we just stay here a minute? And could you for a moment with me just examine your life, my life? Am I losing heart? I mean, are you really losing heart in the midst of, in the midst of the life in which you live? It's an easy if you will, thing to do in the midst of, of opposition. As I said, we do live in a city, you know this, we live in a city that isn't always favorable to listening to us talk about Jesus or live out our lives in a particular kind of way. We know that. You know, we live in a world where suffering happens and we know about it and it really drags on our souls. I don't know how. You read the newspaper, watch the news in whatever form you get it. But how do, we, how do we, week after week, it seems, hear about another mass shooting and not just have our spirits sunk? Right? How, 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 do we, how do we watch refugees? How do we watch people leave their country of origin to go to another place that's completely unknown to them, Really? How do we watch that? How do we watch those parades, if you will, of people walking and walking and walking and we put ourselves in their place? How would we endure that? How can we live in a world where that continues to happen and it's over and over and over and over again? And I could go through the list of all the things we know happening in our city and throughout our country and throughout the world and all of that, just the devastating things. How do we live through that? How do we live through... Personal suffering, after a while, doesn't it get you down? Doesn't it get us down? That there's always one more prayer request of someone we love who's suffering in some particular way. And sometimes it has our name on it. And we live through the, the midst of that and those things, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's relational, whether it's economic. These things continue to come to us. And, and, and so after a while, and, and this sort of malaise, this kind of life of... Christian life being blasé can happen at any point in time, whether you're 20 or whether you're 35, whether you're 50, whether you're 80. There could come a time and ask yourself, just where are you in the midst of, of this losing heart, having hope really to persevere, to continue on? You're weary, you're ready to give up. What's going on? Not lose your faith, not say I don't believe, but just, but what's the use of it? After a while, so, some people find themselves in a, in a place in middle age where their, their kids have grown up and, and, and now are off somewhere else. That, and they find themselves in church and they realize, uh-oh, my whole spiritual life, my whole church life was tied into my kids. And they're no longer here around and I'm finding myself just coasting. And it's the losing heart in the midst of that. find yourself you find yourself then you look at your life and you say you know what I haven't seen any improvement in holiness in a long time 
I'm still struggling with the same things I struggled with before. Maybe there's improvement, but I, I don't see it. And I don't see any great prospect to think that five years from now it's going to be any different than it is today. And we find ourselves losing heart. It's real. So just kind of sit in that for a minute. Because what's going to happen is that Paul's going to give us, I say the secret, it's not really a secret because he wrote about it hundreds of years ago. It's, it's a secret that's been out for a long time, right? So it shouldn't be a secret to any of us. And if I say anything that's new, you don't listen to that, all right? Because this has been out a long time, all right? <clears throat> but here, here it is, and we need it. We need to be reminded because, you know, as we say, well, you can do this with me. We're wired as human beings to stop one day in seven and gaze upon God. Why? Because if we go one more day, we'll be utterly weary. See, we're just wired to do that. We need to stop. And so when we come together on Sundays, what do we do? Well, we stop and we gaze upon God. That's the secret, by the way, of being renewed, being refreshed. Because he says something here in, in verse 16 as he says we don't lose hearts. He makes one statement that's true of everybody and another statement that's only true of some. Makes one statement that's true of every human being and another statement that's only true of some. And if I could say some provided that, that is some who do this. And so notice, he says, though our outer self is wasting away. Now, that's what's true of everybody, whether we want to admit it or not. It's clearly more obvious uh, about some of us than others that our bodies, that we're really our outward self is uh, <clears throat> wasting uh, away. It's, it's just simply simply true uh, that uh, that it is, that our bodies are wasting away. Now, in chapter 5, we'll get to next week, Paul's going to talk about our bodies and the redemption of our bodies and all of that. But right now, he's talking, saying our bodies are, are wasting away. Our outer self really are wasting away. He's alluded to that before. In verse 7, he talks about the treasures and jars of clay and these earthen vessels, as we saw in, in, in some other translations last week, that we come from dust, we go to dust, and... and, and, and our bodies are wasting away. They're just earthen vessels. So that's really, really happening. He talks about even his own, uh, in his own body, carrying around the death of Jesus. And he, he speaks also about always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. His death is always at work in us. And that's just simply true. It simply is. It, we don't like to talk about it. We do everything we can to to avoid this thing called death. And we don't we don't like, especially in our culture, talking about death very much at all. And so so we don't. We try to try to avoid it as much as we possibly can, which is astounding, since none of us can avoid it. Uh, some of us have actually, not me, but some of us have avoided taxes, <laughs> but none of us. We'll avoid death. Ecclesiastes, the preacher, writes of this. He says, it doesn't matter how wisely you live. Both the wise person and the fool die. He says, it doesn't matter how much you accumulate. Both the wealthy person and the poor person die. So we're wasting away. So he says, that's, that's simply true. Simply true. But then he says, 
while the body is wasting away, there can be a spiritual renewal. An inner self is being renewed day by day, he says, that, that we're being renewed day by day. Um, that we're being refreshed, that we're being strengthened, that we're being encouraged. Um, that was Paul's experience. Notice how he puts it in verse 8. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. He says, affliction's coming, and it's, it's, it's making our bodies waste away even faster, right? Um, but we're not crushed. There's something still that remains in us that doesn't crush us. Might crush our body, might destroy, but doesn't crush us. There's something that still we remain hopeful. We're perplexed. All these things perplex us, but we're not driven to despair. There's something in us that keeps us going, that gives us hope. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We know that that we're not left alone. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. And so he said, there is this spiritual renewal. There's still this thing that goes on within us, this renewal uh, all the time. It it, it appears as if though uh, the the, the light in our eyes may dim uh, physically, but the light in our souls is renewed. Continues to shine. Could I even dare say it shines brighter and brighter uh, all the time. And he says this can happen. This happens day day by day. It, it isn't just something that comes once and that's it. It isn't something that's here today but, but gone in another. But it continues on. There's this renewal that continues to go. Jesus said uh, uh, every day brings the trouble of its own. You need this renewal every day. Every day will attack if you will, uh, your, your, your body in a waste away and, and even point to your soul. But, 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 but really, there's renewal that can come, can come every day. Uh, Jeremiah tells us that God's mercies are new every morning. And, and yeah, that's a wonderful little poetic twist, but, but it's, it's something to it that we need the mercies of God. We need the renewal of God day by day. To miss a day, but day by day. So the question is, to whom does this renewal come and how? Well, he says this renewal comes, verse 18, as we look. That is, provided that we look. You want to be renewed. It doesn't happen uh, automatically. Um, Afflictions come, difficulties come. Our bodies are wasting away all the time. But that doesn't necessarily bring an inward Renewal, you know, as well as I do, even in your own life, even in your own life, in the lives of others, but in your own life, you know that affliction doesn't always present itself, bring to us immediately a sense of renewal. Sometimes it brings despair. It really does. We, we get to that point. Paul even says in the first chapter that he was, his life was, was in such peril that he was in despair for his own life. But something happened, obviously, and he didn't go utterly to despair. Some renewal came in the midst of that. But we know this doesn't happen automatically just because you're being afflicted, uh, just because your body is being wasting away, you're getting older. It, it uh, doesn't mean that this renewal comes uh, automatically, but it comes as we look a matter of perspective as we look, provided we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Now, that's rather odd, isn't it? That if you look at what you can't see, then 
you'll be renewed. Well, how can you look at what you can't see? Well, you know what he means. You know, there's something real that we can't see, but we need to concentrate our attention upon it. We need to focus our attention upon it. We need to contemplate it. We need to think about it. That's his point. We need to cast, fix our eyes in one version. We need to fix our spiritual eyes. We need to fix them upon what isn't obvious, what we can't see, that isn't physical, if you will, not looking at our bodies wasting away. Don't, don't look at that. Don't look at the affliction that you can see. But there's something else that we need to fix our eyes upon. And once we fix our eyes upon that, he says that that will renew us. And what we have to fix our eyes upon us, this unseen thing, if you uh, bump up a line, is that we're to look upon, consider what this affliction is preparing for us, which is an eternal weight of glory. To focus our attention upon this eternal weight of glory, which the afflictions that we experience, the difficulties that we experience is actually preparing for us. So he says, don't look at the affliction. Don't look at what it's doing. Don't look at what it's costing. But fix your eyes upon what it's preparing for you. Now, we, we do this all the time. Uh, athletes do it. Coaches say practice is going to be really hard. But if you focus your attention upon the hardness of the practice, if that's as far as you can see, then you'll grow weary and you'll give up. You'll think it's always going to be just like this. And you'll, you'll give up. And the coach says, no, 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 no. I want you to focus on the joy of victory. I want you to focus on how you'll feel when we win the game. I want you to focus on how you're going to feel when, when we're successful. And so, so a good coach, anyway, puts, puts their focus there. This happens, but, but you can only survive this if you do that. A student can only survive a difficult class by focusing attention upon the joy of whatever it is, learning, the joy of pleasing your professor, unlikely, the focus of of getting a good grade, the focus of getting a job, let's be honest. Whatever that is, but if, if you're stuck in the midst of a difficult class, how do you survive it? Well, if you think this is going to be it for the rest of my life, you won't. But if there's something else, if you're saying, this is preparing me, this is preparing something for me that's glorious, I'll put my attention, I'll put my attention there. And that's what Paul is saying. There's something that's really, really glorious beats winning a game, beats getting a good grade, beats all of that. It's something really glorious that even deep, difficult afflictions uh, are preparing for you. Uh, and you'll be renewed if you look there and not at the affliction, not at what you can uh, really see. So what is this eternal weight of glory? Now, the Bible uses the word glory about God in a few different ways. Uh, one way is this. One way it speaks of the glory that God shows. The glory that's true of him that he reveals, that he shows. When we think of the glory of God, the revelation of God, of his majesty, of his greatness, of his goodness. The heavens declare the glory of God. We look to the heavens, we're to see God displayed, if you will, right? 
Ah, the glory that he displayed. When Isaiah went into the temple, he saw the glory of God and he saw this great throne, the great train of the robe of, of, of the Lord filled the temple uh, and, and the angels sang um, glory, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Heaven and earth is full of his glory. We can see it. It's the display of God. But we see, with our eyes that are opened, when we see the glory that we see of God is that which is in the face of Jesus, right? The knowledge of the light of the glory of God that's in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the glory that's displayed. Then there's the glory that we give to God. Now, we don't add to his glory, but the scripture says that we're to give glory to him. And we give glory to him by giving him the honor that he's due by praising him. And so we give glory to him. But there's a third sense of the use of the word glory in the scripture. And that's what's used here, I think. A bit of the first. But the first as it's reflected in the glory that God bestows. The glory that God bestows upon us. We were created in his image. We were created in his glory. We were created to reflect him. Now that was broken, of course, in sin of Adam. And at the fall, we fell short of that glory. And what's happening now, and what will come to fruition at the return of Jesus, for those who believe, is that the glory of God will be bestowed in such a way that will be restored to that glory. And afflictions, you see, produce in us, prepare for us, this great eternal weight of of glory. Jad Packer puts it like this, if I might read just a bit. Where am I? It says, while our outer public self wastes away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We're on our way home and home will be glorious. And contemplating that glory, however inadequately we do it, will brace minds and hearts to resist the weakening effect, the down drag into apathy, and despair that pain, hostility, discouragement, isolation, contempt, and being misunderstood, and all the rest of suffering might naturally have on us otherwise. The watching world may wonder where we find the energy to do so, to keep on, But the puzzlement of outsiders is no concern of ours. What animates and propels us is the power of our hope as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. This is how, by grace, the the God of grace supernaturalizes the natural body, supernaturalizes the natural natural bodily mortal, mortal life, of all those who, through faith, are in Christ, united to him by the Holy Spirit for endless joy and power. God-taught hoping leads to God-given strengthening. And that's it, you see. God-taught hoping 
leads to God-given strengthening. As we look to this eternal weight of glory, as we look to see what this suffering is preparing, then we can then we can endure. First, first we see, for instance, that the affliction is light and momentary. Now, when you hear those words, first, don't think that light means easy. Uh, don't think uh, that, that light means easy. It's hard. Paul lived a difficult life. The afflictions that he suffered were, 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 were difficult, were, were hard afflictions. And it doesn't mean that they're not really real. They were real. I mean, these afflictions were real in Paul. He bore on his body <clears throat> these afflictions. My sense is that if you saw Paul, you saw a bruised up, scarred up guy. I mean, he was just, he had been, stones, rocks had been thrown at him and hit him numerous times. He was beaten numerous times. He was imprisoned numerous times. He was run out of town. He was left for dead, all kinds of things. And, and, and so all these were true of him. So if you saw Paul, you didn't see a pretty guy. So they were, they were real and they were difficult. So when he says light, he doesn't mean they weren't real and he doesn't mean they weren't difficult. And when he says light, he doesn't mean that they were insignificant. They were very significant. He talks about them. He writes about them. They shaped his life. They affected him deeply. They were significant in the context of his, his life. It doesn't mean when he says light, or even momentary, that they're unavoidable. They, 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 they weren't for Paul. They were part of his life. God ordained all this to take place in his life. He couldn't have avoided these kinds of experiences. He was called to suffer for the sake of Christ, as we all are in various ways. And our bodies wasting away isn't avoidable by us. It just simply happens. The afflictions that come to us happen uh, to us very often. And so they're not avoidable. So it doesn't mean that. When he says they're momentary, it doesn't mean they're only going to last for a minute or a short period of time. These lasted Paul's whole ministry life. He was martyred. And so, so these afflictions were not light and momentary in the sense that they were quick, in the sense that they were easy, in the, in the sense that they were insignificant, in the sense that they were avoidable. None of that. He says, but they're light and momentary in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. Because you see, they're only momentary. They may only last our lifetime. They will not last eternity. So compared to eternity, they're, they're just like, he says, you have to fix your mind on, on, on that, the eternal, to be able to endure the present because you need to know that the present affliction is really only temporary, though it may last you your whole life. But it will not last through all eternity. So it's light and momentary in that regard. You know, if you you watch a little kid, three-year-old's running and the sidewalk falls, skins his knee, and he cries uncontrollably. Why? Because he thinks he's going to feel this way for the rest of his life. Right? So he does that a number of times. After a while, he doesn't cry so long. Why? Because he knows that there's something coming and it won't hurt so bad. 
And so he's, after a while, he's able to run and skin his knee and get up and bounce and go again. So he doesn't get discouraged. He doesn't lose heart just by skinning his knee. That's trite, but these afflictions that come are real and they're hard and they're significant. They shape our lives. But if we spend our time thinking about them and living in them and saying that these afflictions, you see, uh, are, are, are going to be it forever, that these afflictions, and we look at what they're costing us, I mean, that's the way it's always going to be. If we stay there, we'll, we'll lose heart, the apostle says. But we have to realize that something's happening in the midst of these afflictions. And these afflictions are preparing something that can only be described as an eternal weight of glory. And I think, really, if you ask Paul, what, what's this eternal weight of glory? He would look at you and say, it's the eternal weight of glory. And you say, I know what it was. He said, well, it's the eternal weight of glory. Because I don't think he has words to describe it either. But it's the glory of Christ in us. And he's saying it starts really right now. A day will come when at the resurrection, when you'll see Jesus and you'll be as he is. You'll be utterly and completely transformed. And, and there, the whole package, it all comes together at that moment in time. But there's something that's happening now by the Holy Spirit that's the resurrection power of Jesus at work in us. Well, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, he describes it sort of parenthetically, I think, in chapter 4, verse 19, as Christ being formed in us. That's the glory that is being bestowed upon us. Christ being formed in us. Later, he sort of fleshes it out. He calls it the fruits of the Spirit. When Christ is formed in us, what do we see? (laughs) We see the glory bestowed upon us. That's the glory of Christ. You see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. Self-control, all of that. We see that. That's what we see when Christ, the glory of Christ, is bestowed upon us. That's what happens. He he writes about it in Romans chapter 8. He says that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. And we realize then that the purpose to which he's called us is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's the glory that's bestowed upon us. That's the resurrection power. So when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, it's Ephesians chapter 1. You might want to turn to that. Move your fingers a little bit. Ephesians in chapter 1. He writes about this resurrection power and he prays that we're able to see it. He prays that we'll have eyes to see this. If I could begin with verse 15, he says, This is his prayer. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, the glory of Jesus. That's the hope to Christ in us is the hope of glory. He's called us to this hope. 
says, And the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This resurrected Jesus, he says, I want you to know the power of Jesus' resurrection that is toward you, that is at work in you. What's it doing? It isn't enabling us to walk on water. It hasn't worked for me yet. Or even do great miracles necessarily. What it's doing in us is forming Christ in us. It's transforming us, this power, this Holy Spirit in us. He's transforming us. And it happens, you see, as we fix our gaze, as we concentrate, as we contemplate upon this eternal weight of glory. We've been through this before. In chapter 3, verse 18, Paul writes this, and we with, with um, this is 2 Corinthians again, uh, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He's saying, listen, as we behold the glory of the Lord, as we fix our eyes on the, on the Lord's glory, the same glory that's bestowed to us by the work of the Holy Spirit, as we fix our eyes then, we will be transformed. Because we become what we behold And we behold him. And it transforms us. And he says the affliction that we go through prepares this for us. It prepares us for it because it readies us to enjoy it because we know this life. And when we see that life, we long for it. And not only that, but when we suffer affliction, it reveals to us our weakness. It doesn't make us weak, we are. We just don't think we are. And when difficulties come, we realize we are. And when we realize we are, then you see, for the believer, we turn to God in dependence upon him. We pray, we seek his word, we seek counsel, we seek help from him and his people, and and we know our weakness. The scripture says that God resists the proud. When difficulties come to us, what happens? It breaks down our pride. That's why we don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like when my weaknesses are exposed. But affliction exposes our weakness. We, We try to, you know, Make sure it doesn't, but it it really does. And we find ourselves acknowledging our need, acknowledging our weakness. So God resists the proud, but what does he do? He gives grace to the humble, to the weakened, to those who acknowledge their weakness. And what happens when we acknowledge our weakness and he gives grace to us? That's when the renewing comes. 
He renews us. He refreshes us. He encourages us. He strengthens us by his grace. So affliction comes. Affliction comes and prepares for us and prepares in us this eternal weight of glory. So this morning, we have at least a visual. It's more than that, because we have the presence of the glorious one among us. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body. This is my body. Fix your eyes upon it. This is my body given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. I do this in remembrance of me. The apostle says, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, uh, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. And so we, we realize, you see, um, the glory of Christ right before us. What do we see? Well, we could go on and on all day, but what do we, we see death to life. We see being united to death, his death, and united to his life. And though we realize that even though the outward self is wasting away, being given over to death. At the same time, the resurrection power of Jesus is at work in us to give us life, to renew us, to strengthen us, to enable us, to help us. He says, ah, fix your eyes upon the eternal weight of glory. And then you'll know the renewing strength of the Holy Spirit in you. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us. That that would be true, that it would enable us to think about, to cast our eyes upon, to concentrate, to contemplate, to meditate upon, to envision, to long for. being conformed to the image of Jesus. This eternal weight of glory. Thus I pray that even now you'd take this bread and this juice and you'd set it apart in such a way that we would know that we're in the very presence of this glorious one. And I pray that you would enable us to fix our eyes upon him and his glory. The glory of his love, the glory of his mercy, the glory of his justice, the glory of his grace. And in focusing our attention on this, his glory, the very glory of Jesus, to know that he is at work in us to produce in us 
the very image of God. To restore in us the image of God. So I pray now that even as we come to this table that you would enable us to see the eternal weight of glory and be renewed. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.